Um, you're going to engage your mind here. I want you to know where you know that you know the God. Just where you're saying God is just so good to me. So I want you to take a moment. Well, my in your life where you know God unmistakably moved and acted and is good to me. It's good to me. And I want you to lasso that and I want you to kind of get that in your mind. So take a moment and do that as we get started. The reason that I want you to do that is because all that we're going to talk about as we jump back into 1 Peter is going to be predicated and built on the fact that you believe that God is good. You are convinced of that. And so we have the the clearest example of that even even before us in this symbol of the cross is that, that God is exceedingly good to us as proven to us in Christ's death and resurrection. God is good to save and God is good to keep and God is good to raise. And so we have to have that clear understanding before we get into these ideas about doing good to those who persecute us. Because that's the foundational truth that that we have to have. And so that's where we'll be this this morning. We're going to be in chapter 3 of 1 Peter. We're going to jump back in. We've been out of 1 Peter for about five weeks. We've been reflecting on the life and death of Christ as we led up to Easter. And last week we have a, had a beautiful celebration of Christ's death uh, and resurrection. And so I'm so, so glad that uh, I get to be a part of a church where we set aside five weeks to reflect on Christ's wonderful life, his death, and his resurrection. Um, one week is not enough for that. And so, uh, but that does mean that that takes us out of our normal preaching rotation, which has been Peter thus far. And so what we're going to do this morning as we jump in is we're going to look at a video from the Bible Project. Uh, They do these really good summary videos of different books of the Bible and uh, actually different theological ideas and whatnot. They're very, very good. I would commend. I've not seen one that wasn't excellent. So uh, we're going to watch one of those this morning as we get ramped up. So if you'll watch this video with me uh, as we get started. The first letter of Peter. His name was Shimon, or Simon, when he first became a follower of Jesus, and he was part of the inner circle of the 12 disciples. When he made his confession that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus changed his name to Kephas, which is Aramaic for rock, which was later translated into Greek as Petros, or Peter. Jesus promised that he would become a leader among the apostles to guide the Messianic community in Jerusalem through its earliest years, and that's what happened. Remember the early chapters of the book of Acts. Eventually, Peter was called to carry the good news of Jesus beyond the borders of Israel, however, and this letter was written decades into that mission in the wider Roman world. We discover at the conclusion of this letter that Peter is in Rome, which he calls Babylon, and we learn that while Peter commissioned the letter, it was actually composed by a man named Silvanus, who was a co-worker of Peter. This was a circular letter sent to multiple church communities in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And Peter learned that these mostly non-Jewish Christians were persecuted. They were facing hostility and harassment from their Greek and Roman neighbors. And so Peter wrote to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. And this helps explain the letter's design and its main themes. It opens with a greeting, and then it moves into a poetic song of praise to God, which introduces the key themes that are explored in the main body of the letter, where he first affirms the new family identity of these persecuted Christians, which will help them see their suffering as a way to bear witness to Jesus. And this has a way of focusing their future hopes on the return of Jesus. Let's dive in. You'll just see how all the pieces work together. So Peter opens by greeting these churches as the chosen people of God who are exiled around the world. 
Now, Peter makes clear throughout the letter that these Christians he's writing to are Gentiles, but here he describes them with phrases from the Old Testament that describe how God chose the people of Israel, the family of Abraham, who was himself an exile and wanderer. This is a key strategy that Peter repeats through the whole letter. He wants these suffering non-Jewish Christians to see that through Jesus, they now belong to the family of Abraham. And so they're wandering exiles just like him, misunderstood, they're mistreated, and they're looking for their true home in the promised land. Peter continues this idea in the opening song. He praises God for causing people to be born again into a living hope through Jesus' resurrection and the power of the Spirit. God's inviting all people into a new family centered around Jesus, a family that has a new identity as God's beloved children and who have a new hope of a world reborn by God's love when Jesus returns as King. And for people who have this hope, suffering and persecution is actually a strange gift because it burns away false hopes and distractions like a purifying fire, and it reminds us of our true home and hope. And so paradoxically, life's hardships actually deepen our faith. They make it more genuine. From here, Peter's going to move on into the body of the letter, but he's going to explore all of these ideas in greater depth. So he first develops the theme about the new family identity of God's people. He takes even more memorable Old Testament images about the family of Israel, and then he applies them to these Gentile Christians. So like the Israelites who left Egypt, they too are to gird up their loins and leave behind their former way of life on the way to a new future. So they are the holy people of God now who are journeying through the wilderness. They are the people of the new Exodus who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who's the ultimate Passover land. They are the people of the new covenant who have God's word buried deep inside them, restoring their hearts and renewing their minds. They are the new temple built on the foundation of Jesus himself. And they're the new kingdom of priests who are serving God as his representatives to the nations. Now, by applying all of these amazing images to these persecuted Gentile Christians, Peter is placing their suffering within a brand new story. And this leads into the next section. Their persecution can actually help bring clarity to their mission in the world, to bear witness to God's mercy among the nations. So Peter first encourages them to submit to Roman rule, even if it's oppressive. Yes, he acknowledges their persecution, their suffering is unjust. But violent resistance solves nothing, not to mention that it betrays the teachings of Jesus who loved his enemies instead of killing them. Peter then specifically highlights the very difficult situation that Christian slaves and wives faced when they lived in Roman households where the patriarch did not follow Jesus. The problem was that it was expected that everyone in the household would submit to and worship the patriarch's gods. And so Peter's aware that giving allegiance to Jesus will generate suspicion. So Peter says it's true. All Christians, including Roman wives and slaves, have been fully liberated by Jesus. But they are to demonstrate that freedom, not through rebellion, but by resisting evil the same way Jesus did, through showing love and generosity to your enemies. And in homes where the husband is also a Christian, it's a different story. They are to treat their wives totally different from their Roman neighbors, regarding them as equals before God who are worthy of honor and respect. And Peter's hopeful that this imitation of Jesus' love and upside-down kingdom will give power to their words as they bear witness to God's mercy and show people the beautiful truth about the way of Jesus. 
But Peter's also a realist. He knows that Christians will continue to be persecuted, and so he reminds them of their future vindication. He recalls how Jesus himself was unfairly persecuted and murdered by corrupt human powers, but in reality, he was dying for the sins of his enemies. And afterward, he was vindicated and given resurrection life by the Spirit. And now Jesus is exalted as king over all human and spiritual powers. Then Peter shows how baptism points to the vindication of Jesus' followers. So like Noah, they've been saved through the waters, not as a magic ritual, but as a sacred symbol that shows their change of heart, their desire to be joined to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And so now, even if they are murdered for following Jesus, their hope is in future vindication and exaltation alongside their king. Which leads Peter into the final movement. He recalls Jesus' words that his disciples should consider it an honor and joy to be persecuted just like he was. Peter then calls on church leaders to care for these suffering Christians and to show the same kind of servant leadership that Jesus did to his followers. And finally, Peter reminds these Christians about the real enemy that they are facing. This hostility isn't simply cultural or even political. There are dark forces of spiritual evil at work inspiring hatred and violence, and they are to resist this evil by staying faithful to Jesus and his teachings and by anticipating his return and ultimate victory over such evil. Peter concludes with a prayer for divine strength, and he sends a greeting from the church in Rome, which he calls Babylon. Now, this is cool. Peter's adopting here the tradition of the Old Testament prophets, for whom the name Babylon became an archetype for any and every corrupt nation. And so Rome has become the new Babylon, and its empire is where God's people are now exiled from their true home in the renewed creation. Peter's first letter is a powerful reminder of Christian hope in the midst of suffering. God's people have been a misunderstood minority from the very beginning, and they should expect to face hostility because they've chosen to live under the rule of a different king, Jesus. However, persecution can become a strange gift to the church because it offers a chance to show others the surprising generosity and love of Jesus, which is fueled by the hope of his return. And that's what 1 Peter is all about. That's what every Bible teacher wishes that they could do. Brevity, clarity, applause. <laughs> it's, it's really, honestly, it's really hard to do that that well. So uh, if you're looking for ministries to support, they're fantastic. Um, just, they're just so gifted and, and good at what they do. So I would commend all their, all their work to you. Um, so, so what we're trying to do as a church is to, to take what First Peter is saying and highlight these themes that are running through the book of First and Second Peter that really push this group of persecuted Christians to remember that all that they suffer is worth it because of what is promised to them in heaven. Though they suffer now, there's great reward that is promised to them in heaven, blessings from God in heaven. And, and, and the way that we've been talking about that is that Christ is worth it. And the, the reason that the elders settled on that as a theme for us this year was because we see you. We see that you're tired and we see that you're worn out and we see that life is hard and we see that you're suffering. We see that some of you are persecuted. We see that you're afflicted and we want to encourage you. And we want to say, keep on, keep going. God is good. And this is exactly why I wanted us to start with this exercise of, recounting God's goodness. And so for me, 
the recounting of God's goodness had a, had a really interesting uh, turn this week. Uh, my 10-year-old scored his first goal in soccer. And so uh, that may not seem like a big deal, but uh, our 10-year-old uh, shepherd was born really, really sick. Uh, we almost lost him. Um, about a year ago today, uh, he had a, a, a procedure that the doctors came in and said, hey, uh, this is about 50-50. It could go either way. And we prayed for the doctor. And we asked him to do his work under the skilled hand of God, and he did. And our son was saved, literally. Uh, he, he would have died without that. And so to see him score his first goal in soccer is a really big yay God moment for us. God is good. God is good. Even though Satan should buffet and trials should come, God is good. And you have to have that firmly and squarely in your mind as we listen to what Peter's about to say to us. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be an easy pill to swallow. But if God is good, then it all makes sense what he's about to say. So I want you to look with me. Uh, if you'll turn to 1 Peter, uh, we'll be in chapter 3. Um, and so Peter uses this point in the letter to, to more fully address this idea of persecution. He introduced it before. He's coming back to it. He knows that his friends are, are, are suffering and they're being overtly persecuted and marginalized by those around them because they follow Christ. And, and this is happening at work and it's happening at home. It's happening socially. It's happening in the religious sector. Uh, and, and this passage that we'll look at this morning in chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, is going to be a, a setup for some, some uh, passages to come where the themes of persecution and suffering are developed a little bit further. So this, week's a, this week is a setup for the next couple of weeks. Out of the gate, I want to deal with an elephant that may be kind of wandering around the room for some of us. Um, I've long been under the persuasion that American Christians don't suffer persecution. And if they do, it's nothing compared to that of our brothers and sisters in North Korea or Syria or even, uh, even the folks that are receiving this letter from Peter. And, and while that's true, I want to present an idea that may flavor how we apply and understand these texts from 1 Peter this morning. Uh, you'll notice that the video wisely picked up on the idea that the persecution that Peter's friends were facing was not simply governmental, but that that persecution has a spiritual animator behind it. That came at the kind of end of the video. And so uh, he mentioned First uh, Peter uh, verses five, or chapter 5, 6 to 11. It says this, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal kingdom in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so Peter makes it clear that the suffering that they're facing is a ploy of their adversary, the devil. Not just where they are, but throughout all the different places. In all its physical forms, persecution also has a spiritual reality. So my question is this. Is it possible that we here in this time are being persecuted through different tactics? The same adversary who wants to devour us and make us useless for God's kingdom, but using new tactics. So maybe in our time, in our context, the suffering for the sake of righteousness or suffering for our faith looks different. Because I can promise you 
the evil one has not just passed over us because we're American. He hasn't taken a day off. And his MO is to kill, steal, destroy, devour, harass until we are useless for God and his kingdom. And so the question is, how is he doing that? If that's what he does, then how is he doing that now? And please hear me clearly, I'm not minimizing the suffering of those who have come before and those who suffer danger for their, for their faith. Even now, there are Christians that gather together that will suffer, maybe even death for their faith. I'm simply assuming that the warfare here and now may have shifted and we've not noticed. The shift may be from overt to covert. So in some contexts, the preferred tactic of the persecutor could be beheading of believers to suppress the advancement of the gospel. In others, it may be preferred to isolate them from their communities or from their families if they trust in Christ. In others, it may be to marginalize Christian belief such that it's considered anti-intellectual to believe the Bible. In other settings, the tactic may be to distract and discourage Christians so that they lose vision for advancing God's kingdom. Sometimes it seems like the tactic is to overtly stomp out Christians. Other times it seems like the tactic is to covertly poison them over time so that they're useless for God. And I think we're experiencing the latter. So it would be much like uh, the difference between beheading someone or putting glass in their food so that when they eat it, they don't realize it, but it it cuts them inside and they bleed internally until they're useless and they die. And I think that something like that could be happening in our own context. I think we're experiencing the latter. Satan, our adversary, is persecuting. The question is, how is he doing that? So what you'll hear me say this morning is this, that that though we suffer persecution in many forms, God sees and he hears and he cares He is for us. There's hope, and he has a plan to bless us. He is our our refuge. He is our defender, and he will bring justice, and he asks us to show the type of mercy that he's shown to us, and that will ultimately reveal his character. It will show people who God is. It will extend forgiveness to our enemies, and it will result in blessing for us. And so if we face persecution, like Jesus faced persecution and suffering and affliction, it will result in blessing. It will glorify God. And brothers and sisters, it is worth it. We are promised life with God. That's what's at stake. That's what we're after. That's what we're pursuing, is a life lived with God face to face for eternity. So let's take a moment and pray that God would give us grace to hear and to be open to what he's saying to us and that he would give us strength to obey him once we hear what he said to us. Father, we do ask that you would uh, give us a special grace to obey. We can't do it in and of ourselves. Pray God that um, you would give us love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and and faithfulness and self-control that will affect the way that we respond to those who wrong us and afflict us and persecute us. Give us um, a sense of your spirit that is at work in us and might he take over more and more control of us this day. Might the words that we hear this morning awaken 
awaken our souls in the way that we, we desire and so long to be awoken. We commit that work to you, Spirit, and we know that your word is the only thing that can do that. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. So read with me in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 8. It says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a tender, humble mind. As Peter prepares to, to dig deeper into this, uh, this suffering that his readers are facing, he starts with addressing how they live in reference to one another. So his, his first comments are kind of going to be in-house or to the family. And my, my question as I started to read this and, and to study it was, why open this section that's going to it's going to address persecution. Why open it with this call to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind? Uh, at first, it kind of seemed out of place, but, but I'm convinced that he's really getting after the heart of what persecution aims to do, and that's to divide. Persecution wants to divide. So he directs them to think the same, understand one another's experience, to love like a family, to live with compassion towards each other, and to be humble persecution, it, it has a purpose. It has an objective. And the objective is to remember, render the persecuted useless for Christ. It seeks to divide and conquer. Peter says that unity, sympathy, love, tenderness, and humility towards one another is the way that we face persecution together. It's the way that we circle the wagons to face this. I want to take a moment and highlight three things that I think are um, so deep into the fabric of our culture that it makes it very hard for us, makes it very challenging for us to do this. Uh, the first one is individualism. Um, we are very individualistic people, and, and many of you are saying, yes, uh, because we, we are taught from birth to be independent, to stand on our own, and that independence is of the highest values. And, and, and to, to need others is weakness. And that we are, we're valuable because of what we can do for others, not what they can do for us. And so my thoughts should also be independent. They should stand on their own. I shouldn't have group thought. I shouldn't have unity of mind with another group of people. That would be brainwashing. This is what the culture will say to you. Secondly, distraction. Day to day, we're drawn away from prioritizing Christian community so much that the church becomes something we do Sunday morning or on uh, some other days of the week. And, and even if we're fully engaged in the meetings, our minds are somewhere else. Because of the amount of information and the amount of commitments that we all run after day to day, they keep us busy. And it makes it hard for me to focus on the suffering that you're facing. I'm so busy with me that I can't sympathize with you. I'm distracted. I'm here, but my mind is somewhere else. And thirdly, I think there's a hardness that has, that has crept in. Many of us have learned to manage being wrong by others by building a shell and not letting others near. So tenderheartedness towards our brothers and sisters is very difficult. It makes us vulnerable to having evil done to us or being hurt in the same way. And so we build up this shell, build up this stronghold, this, this defense or a shield that keeps people away from us. 
So we become like hyperactive, attention-deficient turtles. We aimlessly limp through life, hiding in our shells so that no one can get to us, distracting ourselves so we don't have to be present, living alone while we face the busyness of our lives that runs us from place to place. The people that I see, they so desperately want to have real real relationships, but they're unwilling to come out of their shells. They're unwilling to leave that space of protection that they've built for themselves. And they end up alone with people all around them. And the church has imported much of this from the culture. We soak in this every day. It's everywhere. It is our culture. And we soak in it. And it, and, and it makes it very hard to do this thing that Peter is asking us to do. To have unity of mind. To be sympathetic with one another. To be tenderhearted to each other. To be humble in the way that we think. And so, let me ask you, if, if what I'm saying to you resonates with you, raise your hand. This is happening in our culture. And I think these are the little bits of glass that have been stuffed into the food that we eat. It's been smuggled in. And it's put us in a position to where it's very hard for us to do the things that Peter is asking us to do. And so, much like the church said... We have this disunity, the world sees us, and they discount us. This is genius. Our adversary is tricky. And so I don't think he's stomping. I think he's feeding. A unified, loving humility towards one another is our greatest tactic towards this persecution that we face day to day. So let me ask you, what are you doing to pursue having a like mind with your brothers and sisters here at Northwake? How do you pursue that like-mindedness together with them as a people? How are you cultivating sympathy for others? Do you listen to people? Do you have, you have a space to hear them, to understand them? How are you developing a family love for those who call this their home spiritually? How are you developing love, brotherly love, family love towards those who are here? How are you keeping your heart tender towards other believers? When you do church with someone for 20 years, things can get a little hard, right? It's like family. It's not so easy after 40 years. We have to keep tenderheartedness. Are your thoughts towards others here marked by humility? Some of you are really, really smart. And it's easy to come into any space that you walk in and know that you're smarter than most everybody else there. And so it's hard to have a humble mind towards other people like myself who who aren't as sharp as you. It's difficult. And we have to pursue these things together. I want to give us a couple of suggestions for how to pursue these things. Um, Just some ideas that we can put to work. Things that are already happening here that help you to do this. First, we can pray together Uh, as a church family. We gather together once a month to pray together as a church. We call it corporate prayer. Corporate means everybody. Um, There's usually less people than this here. So you have to ask yourself, does your calendar allow time to pray with those people that you call your spiritual family? Pray together. We have to do this. Pursuing God together, keeping company with God together. 
So we pray together. We study and obey the word together. So are you studying and obeying the word that has been given to us by God with your Christian friends here at Northwake? Is there space and time for that? Do you have that on your calendar? A real simple way to do that, if you're in the 1045 service, there's a 9 o'clock hour where uh, there are multiple classes that meet together, and the whole objective is to study the Bible and apply it to our lives, to try and obey it. We'll watch your kids for you. Come on over. How about the way that you serve people? Do you have someone here that you're serving who can't give anything back to you? Right? Because that's brotherly love, right? That you serve people who can't do anything for you, right? If I go to my brother's house and serve him, uh, he's my brother. It doesn't change the fact that he's my brother. He's always going to be my brother. He has to put up with me. But I go to his house and serve him. Um, that's something different. I don't get much back from that. And so how do we brotherly, lovingly, family serve one another? We worship together through singing about God's faithfulness, just like we did before. We come together and we proclaim the greatness of who God is. We talk about his wonderful deeds towards us and that unifies us. That tenderizes our hearts. When we spend time together with God, together with God, it tends to unify, tenderize, and humble us. So do you have space and time for that? Is that a priority of what the rhythms of your life? Is that what you're about? Because that is at the center of doing this thing that Peter is asking us to do. And I think this is very challenging for us. And so I want to ask you, uh, for the next minute or so, I'm going to give us a little space, a short space of time to consider one of these things. Right? So you'll see these things here. Pick one of those things. This is probably a package deal, but I'm going to let you just pick one because it would be very hard to do all of them. And I want you to commit for the next 60 days or so to just pursue one of them in simple ways. You don't have to do that. But I want to encourage you. This is what we're being asked to do by Peter. He's calling us to this. So just pick one and then pursue that over the next 60 days. So I want to give you a minute or so to, to write down some notes on what you in, intend to do. Maybe text yourself or, you know, type up some notes, however you like to do that. If we don't plan to do these things, if we don't, we don't make action steps towards doing them, we'll never do them. And so um, I hope that this gives you a bit of space and time to, to, to think about doing those things. Uh, public service announcement. If we do these things, it's going to position us, put us in a position to where it's much more easy for people to take advantage of us. You have to know that. Being a Christian is the most vulnerable thing that you'll ever do. If you decide to follow Christ the shell comes off. Because he had no shell. He stepped down from the shell of heaven and lived really in real life with people. And he's calling us to this type of life and it puts us at the very center of vulnerability. And so you have to know that moving forward. You have to know that. Look with me at verse 9. Verse 9. 
Peter says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And so Peter, he's, he's explained how we face persecution together, and now he focuses his, his attention more outward. So, so how do we respond to our persecutors, those who do us wrong? And his, his intention or his instructions show us that he really understands their experience. He knows what they're going through. He knows the temptation to revile someone or to curse someone when they curse you. He knows the temptation to do wrong to the person that does wrong to you. That's a natural response. When someone cuts you off, uh, you know, the natural response isn't like, oh, that was, that was great. No, you like, want to put them in the ditch, you know? That's a natural response. And he says, no, we don't respond that way. Many times that response is, it comes from a just position. We want to see justice done, and we want to execute that justice on someone. But here Peter is asking his friends not to take that into their own hands, but to express an, an, an unexplainable level of trust in God. And he says, when someone does you wrong, don't seek to do them wrong, but when someone mocks you, don't seek to mock them. Don't respond with mocking, but rather bless them. And so he introduces this idea of blessing. So don't do wrong to them, but bless them. Don't revile them, but bless them. He says, do what is contrary to what is natural for you to do. So this is something you can't do in and of yourself. This is something that the Spirit has to do in you. You have to pursue God for this to be a reality. So let's take a minute and talk about this idea of blessing. Uh, the, The word blessing has kind of taken on some strange usages in our culture um, I was out in public yesterday, I was doing something, and I sneezed, and a lady was like, bless you. Like, I didn't know this lady, never met this lady before. Uh, she just out of nowhere said, bless me, right? And I was like, okay, thanks, that's great. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be like Christian people, like just really anybody will just kind of do this. And it's kind of like, well, if I say bless you, then this person who's getting sick won't get any more sick. It's like, a, it's like antibiotics or something, like we kind of use it that way. Uh, or it could be like a license plate on the front of someone's car. It's like blessed, like a title, like I'm blessed. Um, you know, it, it, we could use it as a hashtag for like, you know, uh, uh, an Instagram post about this Chick-fil-A sandwich I'm about to eat. Hashtag blessed, right? <laughs> like we do weird stuff with this word blessed. Or if you grew up in the South, you know that blessed can be used, like bless his poor heart, like some pitiable person that you just... You just want God to bless them so bad because of something they did that was, like, dumb. Like, so we have all these weird usages of the word to bless. And so what I'd like to do is at least temporarily, maybe permanently, put these on a shelf, right, so that we can really start to think about what it is that Peter means. So here, um, it's less of, uh, we kind of have this commodity view of blessing. Like, like, blessing is that we get something from God. Here, Peter's talking more about, um, it's more about a word to say something good about or to do something good towards. So when our persecutors steal from us, uh, we're supposed to say, um, well, at least they didn't take everything, right? Is that, that kind of like the blessing that we're supposed to say something good about them? No. The idea is that, that if someone breaks in your house, they steal all your stuff, the response may go like this. God, you're good. Thank you. That, that we were protected, we were, you know, we were safe. 
I pray that you would work mightily in the lives of those who stole our possessions, and then you call the police, right? You're, you're asking, it's kind of multi-directional. You're including God in the blessing, but you're also seeking good for that person that's done wrong to you, right? And this is totally different than what we want to do. So blessing here should be understood as prayerfully invoking God's kindness over a person in spite of their lack of kindness to you. Lovingly expressing God's mercy towards them in spite of their unjust acts towards you. So a mixture of words and actions that reveal God's goodness and mercy in the face of slander or evil or mockery or wrongdoing. So it's kind of multidirectional. It's, it's prayerful, but it also has action towards it. So blessing those who wrong us begins with affirming God's goodness, his mercy, and his just character, and trusting him to execute justice as we express kindness and mercy towards our persecutors. Peter says that this type of response is our calling. We are called to this, he says, that we may obtain a blessing. So this is at the very fabric of what it means to be a Christian. So to bless your persecutors is distinctly Christian. That's what he means by we're called to this. And if we align our lives with Christ, then that's what we will do because that's what he did. And so when he was reviled, he didn't revile. Remember, he's on the cross. He's got the two guys beside him. They're reviling him and calling out to him and making fun of him. But almost immediately, one of them turns and says, when you enter into your kingdom, will you remember me? And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. So he doesn't turn around and be like, oh, you were just, you know, you were just reviling me. No, he says, no, blessing to you. Likewise, when he's being put to death, what does he say to those who are putting him to death? What does he say to his father? What is it? Forgive. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is the quintessential example of what it means to bless those who persecute us. This is a hard pill to swallow, right? This is not doable in and of yourself. You have to have a spirit from God that's working in you to do this. You have to have a sure belief that God is good. He loves you. He cares for you. He's defending you. He's for you. Peter continues uh, this idea, uh, and, he, and he points to the future. He says, it's our calling, but it's also so we will obtain a blessing or inherit a blessing. He says that ultimately uh, that this type of Christ following it results in the greatest of blessings. And we're tempted here to think that we get something, but, but let's remember this is more about something that's said or done. So a proclamation over a person. So what would that proclamation be like? So what would be the, the, the blessing that I would inherit from God? The good thing that he would say over me. It's probably much like Matthew 25, where Jesus is telling this story about these, uh, these guys that are, that are serving a master, and they do well. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's probably the type of blessing that he's talking about. A proclamation that says, come, have me, get me, be mine. Or the type of proclamation that the father makes over his own son, Jesus. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's what we're after. 
We're not after stuff in blessings. We're after the pleasure of God. God says, come, live in my pleasure. What an invitation. And that when we live like Christ in response to our persecutors, that's what he promises. Enter into the joy of your master. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That type of talk, that type of banner over us. And let me ask you, what could be better than that? What do you want more than that? Than for God to look on your life and say, that's a life that pleases me. Because it's like my son's life. What more could you live for? You could live for stuff and you could live for things, but they'll fail you. And God is calling us to live like Christ for the blessing that is his that he'll share with us. That's an amazing reality that we've been called into. Peter moves on to make his point by inserting Psalm 34. Um, And I wish that we had time to go through all of Psalm 34 this morning. We don't. Um, uh, It's a wonderful read. I I hope you have time to to look at it later today. Um, But this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to talk really quickly about some background for Psalm 34, and then I'm going to show you how he uses it real quick. So um, Psalm 34 has this story that goes on behind it. And, and I'll give you the Cliff's Notes version this morning. And so it goes like this. Uh, remember back in Joshua, uh, we studied that last year. Uh, in Joshua, the people go into the land, they conquer the land, they divide the land. And during that time, there's no king in Israel. They have judges, and the judges help to kind of keep things at bay. But the people don't like having the judges. Things get really bad, and they say, you know what? We need a king. We want a king like all the other nations. And, they say, and, and God says, okay, I'll give you a king. They get a king. His name is Saul. And Saul rules pretty well for a while, but then he starts to go south like all the other kings of Israel. And he raises up David to replace Saul, but Saul doesn't like it. And so Saul then persecutes David for a really, really long time. And in 1 Samuel 21, we start to see uh, that this persecution is ramping up. And in, Psalm 20, or in uh, 1 Samuel 21, uh, David doesn't have enough food. So he goes to the priest, and the priest gives him food. But the food he gives him is only the food that can be eaten by the priest. He doesn't have any regular bread. He just has the holy bread. So he gets this food. Then he goes from that place to a place called Gath. And Gath has a king there. And he's about to align himself with that king. But he remembers, no, God is faithful to me. I'm not going to align myself with this king. So he acts crazy. And as he acts crazy, the king says, get out of here, you're crazy, I don't want you around. So he leaves from that place and goes to a cave all by himself. His family hears that he's at that cave, and they come to him. They come to him along with all these other people, all these disheveled, displaced people who have no home, and he gathers this army around him. And they go out and they conquer the Philistines. And then, around that time, Saul realizes this is where David is. So he goes after David. He's pursuing David, and along the way, he needs to take a potty break. And so uh, he goes into a cave, and lo and behold, that's the cave that David is in. And David has this sweet opportunity to kill Saul. But he says, you know what? I'm not going to do that. He cuts off a corner of his robe, and he says, see, Saul, I'm not against you. I don't want to kill you. And Saul says to him this really interesting thing. He says, you didn't do evil to me, 
when I did evil to you, you did good to me. And I think that Peter has this in mind when he's quoting Psalm 34. I think that's what's going on here. So David is an example. David could have killed Saul. And maybe he should have. Maybe he had the right to. But he trusted that God would defend him. He trusted that God would bring the justice. And so we see this introduction to um, uh, this, this quote from Psalm 34. And the idea that we're going to see, if you'll uh, put that up for me, uh, 1 Peter 3, 10 to 12. He says, uh, he's quoting David here. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Do you have verse 12 on there? Verse 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so Peter is quoting David to say there's two ways to live. You can live a life that's blessed by God, that pursues peace, or you can live a life that is against God, that pursues wickedness. That God has his eyes on the righteous, and the righteous are those who pursue peace among those who are persecuting them. Those are the two ways to live. Or you can be the type of person that's pursuing destruction. And so he's really just presenting the same ideas a bit of a different way by quoting Psalm 34. The point is that the Lord is for the righteous. And as we conclude, I want you to see something in Psalm 34. Psalm 34, 17 to 22 says this. I, uh, Peter doesn't include this, but I think he has it in mind. He says this. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them are broken. Affliction will slay uh, the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servant. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And I want you to notice something. He goes, in verses uh, 19 and 20, he goes from using plural to singular. He says, not any of his bones will be broken. If you know your Bible well, you know that over in John chapter 19, this quote is mentioned to talk about Christ. So why does John think that this is talking about Jesus? Because he's like the rest of us. When he reads this passage, he thinks, well, who is the righteous person? Because when you read it, you should think, well, I'm not a righteous person. I don't pursue peace. I'm pursuing evil many times. I don't use my words the way that I should. So what hope is there for me? And the clue is there in, that, in those verses in 19 and 20. It's talking about Christ. Over in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, I want you to see this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So what hope is there for the unrighteous? This is our hope. That the unrighteous one has a righteous one that died for him. The holy one, the one who was crushed in spirit, the one who was righteous, the one who did what God asked him to do, the one who was brokenhearted, and his name is Christ. And that if we trust him and we walk near to him, 
then we can have the hope that is offered to us in Psalm 34. We can be the righteous. The eyes of the Lord are on us because of what Christ did, not because of what we did. And if we trust him, we can live a life that looks at our persecutors and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Brothers and sisters, this is the only way that we come out of the shells that we've built for ourselves, is if we take refuge in Christ. He is our refuge and he is our hope. And so let me encourage you. God is asking you today to take your refuge in him. Don't build a shoddy cave for yourself that offers you no protection. Trust in Christ and trust that God loves you and cares for you and sees what you're experiencing and offers you hope in the midst of it. We pray for me, pray, for, pray with me and pray for me as we all seek to apply this and live this out. Father, we thank you that um, our works are not enough. We thank you that Christ, you have done it all and that we can't add to it, but that we stand in the righteousness that you offer us, the righteous life that you give for our unrighteous life that fills in, that makes us holy. Father, we ask you that you would make our words be like that of Christ and make our hearts be like that of his that offer forgiveness to those who persecute us. Lord, this is a work that only you can do. Might we bless those who do us wrong. Might we be like Christ in that way and we pray it in his name, amen. Who do us wrong. Might we be like Christ in that way and we pray it in his name, amen.